Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doylestown Presbyterian Church. It's clear these days it's tough to make time. Schedules quickly become busy and calendars suddenly become full. To that end, DPC is excited to now offer this podcast channel, which will allow you to hear a recording of Sunday's sermon from that day's preacher. Whether you listen while taking an evening stroll, driving to and from the grocery store, or anytime you get a free couple of minutes, we hope it can allow for reflection and spiritual growth during your week. We also invite you to visit www.dtownpc.org to learn more about our church, our various ministries, and online giving opportunities. Thank you for tuning in. Our Old Testament reading that we heard moments ago offers the background for the most famous scene in the entire book of Daniel. The moment when that title character finds himself in the midst of a literal lion's den is so well known that it's become part of everyday conversation, even for those who don't recognize it or know that it has a biblical origin. Or the phrase of den of lions speaks of moments when someone walks into a perilous situation And so, for instance, this past week, those troubling photos out of Kabul give us a kind of glimpse of a lion's den in which those brave women and men are going in to extract Americans and Afghans who had helped them. Given that narrative's familiarity to us, it would have been understandable if we had chosen to hear the entire story again today, moving from the problem to the resolution. And yet, when I was planning this sermon series months ago, and I was looking at this scene, I was struck by how much we would miss if we move through that quickly. And so I've decided that we will ponder this closing part of our summer reflection over the course of three Sundays. And so I will set the stage this morning. Next week, Becca Bateman Our associate pastor nominee will move the story forward, and then the Sunday Sunday following that, Pauline will bring us home. Given where we have stopped today, though, we'd like for us to look at this particular narrative on its own. And it tells us of the third king who has appeared in this book in our summer reflection And this king, too, comes to understand that Daniel has some particular gifts. So he places that Jewish exile as one of three presidents in the kingdom who oversee 120 other regional officials. And somehow, in circumstances that aren't described for us, Daniel proves his worth even more so. And the king decides he's going to promote Daniel and gonna make him second in the kingdom only to the sovereign himself. Before he can act on that plan though, word leaks out and the other royal officials come together to plot how they can do away with Daniel. We're told that they can't find any corruption, any ineptitude in their, his service. And so they have to do something else. As they go back to Darius and they lie, as they tell their king, that all of the royal officials have agreed 
that there is this ordinance the king should establish. Namely, that he should decree that for the next 30 days only, everyone in the kingdom has to pray only to Darius. And if they don't do that, they are to be thrown into a den of lions. Now, there are at least a couple of reasons Darius should have rejected their proposal. First of all, I think it's highly unlikely that what seemed to be about 125 officials had come together and had perfect agreement about a course of action. Our congregation has about 1,500 members. And my guess is that on some topics, we have about 1,800 opinions. (laughs) Because there are times that we disagree even with ourselves. And I'm sure that that was true of those people who were under Darius's reign. Yet even more significantly than that, we know that it wasn't unusual for kings in that era to be viewed as a kind adopted son of the deity. And yet historians tell us that it had been unusual, even outrageous, for a king to declare himself as God. And the practical effect of this decree would be do just that. And yet despite those reasons he should have rejected the idea, Darius proceeds, even buys into their idea that once signed, that law cannot be undone. Well, next week, we will move ahead in the narrative and learn or be reminded that despite knowing of that new law, Daniel continues to pray only to God. And despite having been the one to write the law, Darius tries all kinds of things to prevent from having to place Daniel into that lion's den. And then despite all that, spoiler alert, Daniel lives to see another day. We stop here, though, and ponder what it was that got Daniel into trouble. Now, on the surface, we might think it was nothing more than these jealous officials or even the naive naive spirit of Darius who was willing to accept this kind of flattering idea. And clearly, those two pieces played into the drama. And yet, there's something else that our text tells us. For we're told that when this group of individuals is conspiring against Daniel, they come to this conclusion. We we shall not find any complaint unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. In other words, they choose to plot on the basis of Daniel's clear faithfulness. Now, at first inkling, that could seem to be an odd way to begin. I think in that culture and in our own, we don't start at a point of strength in another, but often we can see ways when people will lift up weaknesses. So, someone who announces a candidacy for an office held by a longtime incumbent will not, as part of the campaign kickoff, praise the current office holder for all the ways that she or he has, has brought jobs into the district, rather will more likely lift up broken promises. 
someone who desperately wants to be named the next sales manager in the company isn't going to talk to his or her colleagues about how the other finalist for the position has brought in all this new business, but rather likely will mention more of lost accounts. A ball player who wants to be the starting center fielder for his team is not going to talk to his wife about the better batting average of the one who currently holds that spot, but rather his poorer defensive average. In all kinds of ways, both then and today, the place that we tend to start is thinking about what is the weakness? What's the most vulnerable place for bringing about what we want to achieve? And that's what we would think but these officials do something else. For they intentionally create or propose this bizarre law because they know that Daniel will never bow down and pray to the king. In so doing, they lift up a reality that is true still, namely that the place where we might be most vulnerable is not at a point of clear weakness, but strength. That sometimes it is the very things that we do well that can cause us to stumble. Two weeks ago, Lori and I spent an enjoyable day learning about Henry Ford, the American industrialist who died in 1947. We were concluding a vacation to Michigan and spent two nights in Dearborn, which is the city of of the Ford Motor Company, which is named after and founded by Henry Ford. We toured a museum that bears his name. We went through a factory where they make trucks. And along the way, we learned all kinds of things about him. I, I had known before that day that he was the inventor of the Model T, that he had brought about great new efficiencies in assembly line work, but learned all kinds of other things. That he had a relentless work ethic. That he was someone who naturally understood how mechanical things work. That under his oversight, Ford introduced the five-day work week that he literally doubled the wages of all his employees in a moment's notice, changing the wage structure throughout the industry. And throughout his life, he continually tried to lower the cost of the Model T so that as many people as possible could own one. And at one point, more than half of the cars on the road in the U.S. were Model Ts. I was inspired by that account. And so as we were leaving the gift shop of the museum, I I spotted a book about him that that I chose to purchase because I wanted to learn more about someone who turned out to be America's second billionaire. And what I discovered was along with all of those great strengths, the ways those same attributes caused problems for him later on. He resisted stopping production of the Model T long after sales had dropped and competitors were picking up his business. And despite the way that his advisors kept telling him it was time for a change because in his mind, the Model T was the perfect car that did not need to change. 
He stepped away from the presidency of the Ford Motor Company 30 years before he died, and he was succeeded by their only son, Edsel. And yet, Ford continued to badger and belittle Edsel in public, and his son died at 49 of stomach cancer. And afterwards, Ford said, maybe I was too hard on the boy. And towards the end of his life, he got to the place where anyone who would challenge an idea, even longtime associates, would be dismissed from the company, to the place that it became among Ford executives of that time a third certainty in life of death and taxes and dismissal. Henry Ford was not the first or the last person for whom a strength proved to be their undoing. A playwright, playwright named Dora Sherry talked about that potential really in all of us when he said, a person who calls himself frank and candid can very easily find himself becoming tactless and cruel. A person who prides himself on being tactful can find eventually that he's become evasive and deceitful. A person with firm convictions can become pig-headed. Loyalty can lead to fanaticism. Caution can become timidity. Confidence can become arrogance. Humility can become servility. All these are ways in which strength can become weakness. Daniel found himself in trouble precisely because of his devotion to God. And while the point in that narrative and the point of this sermon is not to suggest that somehow we need to lower the level of our faithfulness, it does make clear that there are times in every aspect of our life, when the things that perhaps we are best at, things that we are known for, can become a source of weakness for us. And that is true when it comes to one's faith as well. I suspect that many of you know of individuals who are so, so devoted to their particular faith tradition that if a son or a daughter marries outside of it, that a rift is created that sometimes is never closed. I've known of people who are so confident they had the clear biblical understanding for some issue facing our society, whether it's abortion or climate change, whether it's same gender marriage or racial justice, they're so convinced they have it right that they stop talking to longtime friends or fellow church members. Whenever that happens, that's sad to me. Sad because it, in fact, indicates one is claiming a kind of absolute knowledge that none of us on this side of heaven ever has. And because the founder and perfecter of our faith modeled a much better way. We see that in those verses that we heard from John's gospel, a moment that is 
towards the end not only of the gospel but the last account that we have of Jesus during his time on earth. And it occurs after the resurrection and after a breakfast that Jesus has shared with 11 remaining disciples when he has this conversation with Peter. Prior to that moment, those disciples had been out fishing on the Sea of Galilee when they saw the risen Christ on the shoreline. And Peter jumps in the water and swims ashore, and it's when the others arrive that they have this meal together. And then a conversation begins that may have included the others being present, but as described for us, it's only between Peter and Jesus. Now, to hear it more fully, a couple of things that you need to remember. First, Jesus is the one who changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter, or Cephas, which means rock. Jesus did so because of the strength that he clearly recognized in that disciple and because of his decision that Peter would be the rock upon which Jesus built the church. In addition, you need to know that Peter was the first one who pieced together exactly who Jesus was when everyone else was still confused. He was the one who spoke first after the moment of the transfiguration, when his Lord's countenance was changed and he appeared with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. And Peter was the one at the Last Supper when he told Jesus that even if everybody else fled, he would never abandon his teacher. It was immediately afterwards that Jesus told Peter that before the sun had fully appeared the next day, that that disciple would deny even knowing him three times. And that really was the last conversation they had before the events of the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus, when the prediction of what Peter would do lived out and that disciple fled the scene in tears. So it's on this day after the meal, that the two of them began to talk again. And Jesus starts by saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It must have been painful for Peter to hear Jesus refer to him as Simon again, as a way of saying somehow he had not been the rock that Jesus had anticipated. But on hearing that question, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Twice more in quick succession, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And both times he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus responds, tend or feed my sheep. The threefold nature of that question was very intentional by Jesus. It was a way of undoing the three times of denial. It was a moment of an enabling Peter to claim that strength again that was inherent in him, this natural gift that he had, which had led Jesus to select him as a disciple at the very beginning. And it was after that time that Jesus then said to Peter, once again, 
follow me. How do we best resist those moments when our own strengths can cause us to stumble? How do we best minimize those chances when the thing that is the very best about who we are ultimately causes great hardship for ourselves and others? We'll never perfectly reach that kind of place. But a key part of it, it seems to me, is to surround ourselves with people who know and love us. A spouse or a friend, a sibling or a coworker who knows our strengths and celebrates them with us, but who also is able on occasion to say, enough. And in those moments, we are able to listen. But when that happens, what we begin to realize once more is the strength that we have in that loved one, which leads to the most natural response of all as being, thanks be to God. Let us pray. We give thanks, O God, for the gifts that you have given to each one of us, for the unique strengths that we have, and for the ways that we use those talents to enrich the lives of others and bless your creation. We thank you for those people as well along our life's journey who love us, who know those strengths, and who are able to help us see the moments when we are going too far. Help us to listen, to celebrate that candor, and to respond in ways that further draw upon the talents that you have shared with us and enabling us to move forward in new ways of furthering your purpose. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on your journey of faith. Don't forget to check out www.dtownpc.org to explore all the ways DPC strives to be a bridge for Christ and a beacon of his love.